This uh, stanza that we just sang leads nicely from the collection into the uh, law and makes a connection between God's self-revelation and his, his generosity for his people. We're going to read about his law as well in our reading from Romans chapter 7 this afternoon. We're going to read Romans 7 verse 25 to the end. Romans 7, starting at verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin. By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandments, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For, what I, do, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. We also read together from Lord's Day 34, page 550. Lord's Day 34, page 550. This starts a section in the Catechism on the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, as part of our life, lived out of thankfulness to God. The first question then is, what is the law of the Lord? Then we read the Ten Commandments as we heard them this morning. How are these commandments divided? Into two parts. The first teaches us how to live in relation to God. The second, what duties we owe our neighbor. 
What does the Lord require in the first commandment? For the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in Him alone, submit to Him with all humility and patience, expect all good from Him only, and love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against His will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this past Thursday, the Manly Sea Eagles were scheduled to play a game against the Sydney Roosters. Now, in case you didn't know, the Manly Sea Eagles are a rugby club who compete in the National Rugby League. For this particular game, management had decided as a one-off that the players would play wearing jerseys that included the rainbow pride colors. Although management apparently spent a year planning this event, they didn't bother to consult with the players who would actually be wearing the jerseys in question. And so, to their great surprise, seven of the players refused. They said that they were Christians and they could not wear this jersey. Then they were told to stay away from the game because of security concerns, although no threats had been made at that point. That was this past week. The story is interesting because it shows how modern society, which prides itself on being so inclusive, is actually very exclusive when it comes to people's religious beliefs. In the name of tolerance, they have become very intolerant. Surely we live in a society which is confused. It does not see the internal contradiction that comes with imposing their beliefs on another group of people in the name of tolerance. That's because tolerance in and of itself can never serve as a moral compass. If tolerance means that you include all views and accept all views, then by definition you will at some point have to include views that are mutually contradictory. So tolerance by itself cannot serve as a moral compass. Only God's law can ultimately do that. Through the law, we come to know our God, our neighbor, and ourselves. And that will also be our starting point this afternoon as we consider the law of God. Now, the first thing we should note is that this is the second time that we're dealing with the law and the catechism. The law was first mentioned very early on in Lord's Day 2 in a summary form as our Lord taught it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, And this is a great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so so that was God's law in, in its ultimate form, a law that commands us to love, and we discovered there that we cannot do that. We cannot keep that law. In fact, the opposite is true. 
We are inclined by nature to hate God and our neighbor. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that, that we hate to the fullest extent all the time because that's not true, and that's not what it's saying. But to be inclined means to, to be oriented in a certain direction, to lean in a certain direction. It's a default setting, so to speak. If God took the brakes off of society, we would all be rolling down the same slope. We are by nature inclined to hate God and our neighbor, and that means by nature we are under God's wrath. But that was Lord's Day too. In between, we've had this whole section on deliverance. We've covered all of that in the past months together as congregation. We've heard that message again, the good news, how God sent His Son into the world to die for sinners, how through that Son He has become our Father as well, how He in Christ redeems us from the wrath to come and renews us by His Spirit, how He reorients our life to His glory, and it's only after that that we go back to the law. After we hear about our deliverance, we go back to the law here in Lord's Day 34, but now it's under very different circumstances. Now the law is not here to pronounce doom over our lives. Instead, it serves as a guide to teach us how to live a life of gratitude and thankfulness to God. The problem is that by nature, we still don't know how to do that. That part has not changed since Lord's Day 2. The, the requirement of the law is still summed up in the command to love, and we still don't really know how to implement that fully. We still need to learn how to live this new life that we have received. This is reflected in question and answer 93, when it says that the first, command, that the, that the commandments, the first part of the commandments teaches us how to live in relation to God. This is an ongoing thing. It teaches us. It has to continue teaching us. We need to be taught how to live in relation to God and our neighbor. And that implies that even though we're redeemed, even though we belong to God, we still need to learn. That's also why, why question answer 94 contains a phrase, come to know Further that I rightly come to know the only true God, this implies that we don't actually know Him all that well yet. We need to come to know Him better, and the Ten Commandments is going to help us to do that. Apart from His self-revelation, God is not knowable. Psalm 97 verse 2 says that clouds and thick darkness surround Him, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. What does it mean that God is righteous? It means that he lives up to a standard. To be righteous means to live up to a standard. You could compare it to code. If you're a builder or an electrician, you have a certain code that you're supposed to, to build to. Just like a builder builds according to code, a, a righteous person lives according to the law. If you want to build a house, the, the code is not optional. And if you want to be righteous, the law is not optional either. God is righteous because He lives according to His own law. The, the law is an expression of His character, of His righteousness, and He's always 100% consistent with Himself and His own actions. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. So what that means is that the law reflects His nature. 
When he reveals the law to us, as he does in the Ten Commandments, he's revealing something about himself. That's why there's something mysterious about the law, something supernatural. The commands reveal something of the innermost being of God, the things that motivate him. By revealing the law, he reveals something of himself. Why does he do that? The law is therefore an invitation to to draw closer to him. He wouldn't reveal himself if he didn't want us to draw close to him. So the catechism reflects that in its explanation on the very first commandment. It says that the, the essence of the first commandment, when you understand it, positively speaking, is that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. This is a call to a relationship. It goes far beyond merely telling us what to do. God is not just imposing a blind, unthinking obedience on us. He's calling us into a relationship of life with him. And it's been that way, it's been that way since the beginning. He already said in Leviticus 18 verse 5, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So the law was meant to lead us to life. Life and fellowship with God, but this life is by nature out of our reach. Apart from God's regenerating grace in our lives through the Holy Spirit, all the law can do for us today is to reveal how far we are from God by nature. Paul reflects on that in verse 10 of our reading. He says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. All it does is to reveal our inherent sinfulness and lostness. And that's why the first commandment, immediately mentions idolatry. If it's up to human beings, we'll always default to idolatry at some point. Why? Because idolatry is easier. In idolatry, man gets to set the terms. Maybe you've been to Bali before and stayed at a resort there. And if you did, you may have noticed an idol. Most resorts there seem to have one. They're often made from some sort of a concrete product. And if you got up at the right time in the morning, you would have seen some of the resort staff go there with a little woven grass or bamboo, um, palm leaf, whatever, basket with a small offering in it and a stick of incense and they place it in front of the idol. Why do they do that? It's not as if they think that this, this idol is actually going to eat the offering. These people are not stupid. They, they understand it doesn't work that way. But an idol is to an idolater what a solar panel is to an electrician. It's a way of capturing the energy of something bigger than yourself and channeling it into a form that you can control. That's the essence of all idolatry. The idolaters are convinced if they follow the right rituals, they can manipulate the God into giving them what they want. In other words, they want to know God on their own terms. That's what it's about. But, brothers and sisters, don't we sometimes have the same approach in our relationship with God, the same mindset? Do we have a relationship with Him through faith in Jesus Christ? Or is it more like a business relationship? We do what we're told and then we expect to get rewarded. Then we say that God has blessed us. And He has, we cannot deny that. Look at this parking lot. 
How many million dollars worth of vehicles are sitting out there right now? Look at our lifestyle. Look at our homes, our schools, our families. God has blessed us in ways that our forefathers could barely imagine. But how are we receiving these blessings? Do we receive each of them as, a, as an act of God's grace given to us in Jesus Christ? Or do we see them as something that God had to give to us because we did our best to keep his law? Or to put it differently, are we relating to him according to question and answer 94? Or question and answer 95? Are we relating to him as our God? Or are we relating to him as a heathen relates to his idol? What if God took it all away from us? Every last blessing. What if the only thing that we had left was God's promises? The preamble to the Ten Commandments, so to speak. The promise that He is the Lord our God. What if that was all we had left? Because one day it will be. One day all of us are going to die. Some sooner than others. Everything will be taken away from us. And at the point when you exhale your last breath on this earth... At that point, God is all that you have left. The promise of his presence. That promise is founded on God's redemption, and that redemption is already given to us, in a sense, extended to us in the opening words of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. At the point in time when this law was first given, that that. Um, delivery, that redemption was still very fresh in the minds of the people. Um, as time went on, it became a, a bit of a paradigm. It began to represent um, God's deliverance from everything that oppressed his people. And that's why we still read the Ten Commandments, these same words, every Sunday today. Probably none of us have ever been to Egypt. I've never been to Egypt. You probably have never been to Egypt. We probably know nothing about slavery other than as a uh, historical or theoretical idea, an abstract concept. But that's not the point. The point is that God is a God who delivers. As he delivered his people from slavery to Pharaoh in the past, he delivers them from the much greater slavery to sin and death in the present. And that's why the law is put here, not in the first half of the catechism. It was... It was summarized in the first half, but not elaborated until now. Our relationship with him is not a business relationship. It's a relationship of love, born out of his love, his redemption in Jesus Christ. He says to us, I am the Lord your God. His relationship with us is exclusive. He's protective of that relationship. And the law helps us to be protective of our relationship with him as well. It's expressed in how we come to know him and also in how we come to know our neighbor. We'll look at that next. Question and answer 93 of the Catechism refers to what duties we owe our neighbor. What is a duty? The dictionary definition of duty is a moral or a legal obligation. But when the catechism uses that word, it means more than just an obligation because an obligation is something that you can discharge without love. But we cannot remain emotionally detached when we carry out our duty towards our neighbor. 
Our entire duty is summarized in the word love. Love is an emotional word. It's our duty to our neighbor, to, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to seek the best for him or her. Now, over the years, there have been people who, who thought that that means that you need to love yourself first. After all, if you don't love yourself, how can you love your neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, this must mean that you must love yourself first. If you feel dissatisfied with your faith life, you need to build up your self-esteem first. Now, this is a, a very popular message for our times, but this is not at all what, what that means. Because this is where our whole problem begins, right? We esteem ourselves too highly. We think of ourselves too highly already. The very fact that we're so busy with ourselves, that we're so self-centered inherently is a sign that the old nature was not dead yet. One of the first things God calls us to do is to deny ourselves. Our Lord Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. So this command to love our neighbor as ourselves has nothing to do with self-esteem. Rather, the point of this, as John Kelvin also rightly pointed out, is that our neighbors are equal to us. Before God, we are all equally plunged into a common misery. After redemption, we all equally belong to Him. We all equally need God, regardless of who we are. You want to talk about inclusiveness? That is inclusive. There's nothing in the whole world that is more inclusive than that. But the problem is that nobody wants it. This message of denying yourself and putting the old nature to death is something that... that Nobody can accept without God's grace. Only God himself can motivate us to do these things. Only God himself is, is great enough to be the motivation for this. Anything else is too small. And this is why true faith can never be motivated by material blessings alone. It needs more in order to truly thrive. You cannot come to know your neighbor if you have not first come to know God and how you stand in relation to Him. But when you do, when you do, then how you relate to your neighbor changes as well. Especially if your neighbor is someone who doesn't know the Lord himself. Or maybe he or she does know the Lord but needs encouragement. How well do you actually know your neighbor? It's a good question to ask yourself. If you... And we, we, we ask this in a very physical sense, in the sense of the people that actually live near you. If you live in a suburb especially, you should at least know the people on either side and the ones across the road and possibly the ones in the lot behind you. It's harder if you live out in the country. Our, our nearest neighbor, other than the next door neighbors, is, is, is over on the other side of that paddock. We see him maybe twice a year. So um, that's a bit harder to see your neighbor regularly, but you can, still, you can still run into them from time to time. Make it a habit to pray for your neighbors. But how are you going to pray for them if you don't know their needs? So in order to pray for them, you need to talk with them. And, and so this, this is, in a sense, embodied in this call to love our neighbor, that we also care enough about our neighbor to talk to them. And you know, this is such a blessing for so many people. Having someone that actually listens, actually asks good questions and listens. That's more than a lot of people have in their life. 
People live in an incredibly distracted world if, if you haven't noticed that yet. Everybody's on their smartphone. So be the one person who isn't. In today's world, that's going to stand out more and more. Don't waste the opportunity. If you're, if you're mindlessly scrolling on your phone when there's someone beside you, whether at work or anywhere else, you're wasting a potential opportunity to love your neighbor. And your nearest neighbor, of course, is your family. If you're married, your neighbor is your wife. Sometimes families are hardest to love, aren't they? You'll never encounter the old nature and the power of the law more than in your own family. Your family is a microcosm of the world because you know each other so well. You, you relate to each other. You see each other so often. You can, you can get some pretty ugly conflicts in the family, even on a small scale between, let's say, teenage or even younger siblings. It can get pretty ugly, and that shows our smallness and our need, our ongoing need for God's grace. Surely the, the greatest equalizer of all is that we all need him. Through the law, we come to know him. We come to know him as a God of our neighbor in this family sense as well. We come to know ourselves. We might think we're not doing badly, but God confronts us with ourselves as well in his law. Now we'll look at that last. By nature, we tend to be pretty confident in ourselves, our own sense of right and wrong. That's not just unique to unbelievers. Even believers will sometimes talk that way. If you go to Kurong right now, well, you shouldn't because it's Sunday, but if you were to go to Kurong on, on any other day, you would find lots and lots of books that would tell you pretty much exactly that, purportedly Christian, and they tell you to follow your heart. Just trust God and follow your heart, they say. In our, in our pre-confession class, we've, we've been looking at, at some of this material earlier this year. That was even the title of a meditation that came off of one of these websites, Trust God and Follow Your Heart. It's terrible advice. You shouldn't follow your heart. It is true that God promises to give us a new heart, new in the sense of being regenerated, but that doesn't mean that you're fully sanctified right away. According to Ephesians 4, your, your heart is still in the process of being renewed. And Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says that your heart is deceitful above all things. So um, in Jeremiah, he's talking about the unregenerated heart, but that, that doesn't go, completely go away, that deceitfulness, when you become a Christian. The only thing that is infallible is the Word of God. So you should not always assume if your heart is guiding you or pointing you in a particular direction, you should not assume that this is the direction in which you should go. It might be the old nature. Your heart is not always reliable. Even what you think is your conscience might actually not be what it seems. But through the law, we truly come to know ourselves. We come to know that even though in this life we may be set free from the dominion and slavery of sin, we are not in this life set free from the flesh and the body of sin. And the Apostle Paul wrote about that in Romans chapter 7. In verses 7 through 13, he is speaking in the past tense. He writes about how it was for him before he, he in a sense, came to faith, to saving faith. And what he says here is that he didn't actually have an accurate view of himself. I was once alive apart from the law, he says in verse 9. But when the commandment came, 
sin came alive, and I died. He doesn't, he's not trying to say that, that he was actually spiritually alive apart from God's Holy Spirit. But he's saying that he was ignorant. He thought that he was fine until the law revealed his sinful inclinations. There's a very helpful analogy to understand this passage, which um, has been used by others as well. I'm really not the first to think about it. But, but the analogy runs something like this. Imagine, and uh, this is actually if you have um, Stuart Oliott's book on Romans at home, he, he lays this out really nicely. But imagine that a man hires a housekeeper. And the housekeeper does not do her work properly, so the man puts a list of rules on the refrigerator, very specific rules. Meals at 8, 1, and 6. Dishes to be done immediately after meals. Coffee grinds go into the garbage, not down the sink. And so on. And as soon as he puts these rules on the refrigerator, she begins to feel resentful. She thought she was doing fine before, and now you have all these rules. And sometimes, out of spite, she flushes the coffee grinds down the sink anyway. She never felt the urge to do it before, but now that she sees these rules here, she thinks, does it anyway. So the problem was not with the rules. The, the, the rules are, in a sense, you know, the, the problem is with her. The, the, the rules did not make her behave in this way. But eventually the man falls in love with his housekeeper and he marries her. And then he takes the rules down from the fridge. But the housekeeper wants to please her husband. She wants to do that which makes him happy. So she still lives according to these rules. That's a little bit like our relationship with God and the law. God gave us the law so that we might live but that law stirred up sin in our hearts instead. That's why verses 7 through 13 is in the past tense in, in, in uh, Romans here. But now we are renewed. We, we belong to God. We want to keep His law. We, have, we are inclined towards keeping His law. But that doesn't mean that we are immediately perfected. And that's why the rest of the passage, verses 14 onwards, is written in the present tense. It's describing the life of a believer now. We love the Lord. We, we want to serve Him. But sometimes believers still fall back into old sins. And that's what he says in verse 22. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Now he loves God's rules. His heart is oriented towards God. So, so that part is not the problem. But he goes on to say, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So, so law here, when he talks about the law of sin, he means law more in the sense of, for example, the law of gravity, a, a natural force in your life. He says the law of sin is, is pitted against the law of God. And I delight in the law of God, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin. So there's this ongoing battle in the mind. An ongoing struggle. And, and that's actually also a, a warning of sorts to us that, that we should struggle with sin in our lives. If you have sin in your life and you're not fighting it, then you're not right with God. That's, that's also a conclusion that you can draw from that. So what do believers do then? If, we, if we're constantly in this, uh, we have a renewed heart, but we still have the old nature pulling us back, all the canons of Dort talk about that, chapter 5, article 2, and they do that so nicely. I'm going to look it up right now. Chapter 5, article 
to in, in the Canons of Dort. Wonderful document, the Canons of Dort. Brilliant, so, so pastoral, so practical. And on page 582, chapter 5, article 2, talks about daily sins of weakness. And it says, Therefore daily sins of weakness spring up and defects cling to even the best works of the saints. So these are are renewed, regenerated people, Christians that we're talking about. These are for them a constant reason to humble themselves before God, to flee to the crucified Christ, to put the flesh to death more and more through the spirit of prayer and by holy exercises of godliness, and to long and strive for the goal of perfection until at last, delivered from this body of death, they reign with the Lamb of God in heaven. So, in other words, every time that we encounter sin in our lives, we go back to God's grace. Not just to God's law, but to the grace that the law points to. Then the law will follow. You know, the world that you're living in tells you that you alone know who you are, that you alone can determine who you are, that you might not know right now, but you can go out and experiment and find who the real you is and then follow that. But the Bible says all of that is wrong. You have no innate insight into yourself because of sin. It it twists everything. It twists your self-perception too. If you really want to know who you are, you need to turn outside of yourself. You need to turn to God. You need to turn to His law, and unless you do that, you will never know who you really are. You will never know the truth about yourself. You will never really know your neighbor. You will never really know your God. From where do you know your sin and misery? From the law of God. And that law sends you back to Christ. And you come to know Him more and more, and you want to serve Him, and that sends you back to the law to show you how. And you begin to see your neighbor as he or she really is. And you have more and more insight into yourself and your motivations. And and you become humble and that drives you back to God again. And that's the Christian life. May it so continue for all of our days until one day we are perfected as well. Amen.